Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, attorney and Republican strategist, Jay Carson. We start today with the resignation of Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, in the wake of a travel scandal involving Price spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in government funds to charter flights, as opposed to taking far less expensive commercial flights as his predecessors at HHS did. Now this, along with what President Trump viewed as Price's ineffectiveness in the effort to repeal and replace Obamacare, led to the resignation. And now we're at a point where just over eight months into the administration, we've seen the departure of a national security advisor, a press secretary, two communications directors, a chief strategist, an acting attorney general, an FBI director, and now an HHS secretary. So, Jay, well, what do you make of this latest development? I've, I've, what I've done is I've queued up. I think we should have this, this audio just always, always handy. Just, just kind of have that, just, just so we that every like as an intro to, um, uh, look, I, I think this is a uh, uh, Trump doing the right thing. Uh, I, I think it's hard for anybody to argue that um, this is a wrong thing to do. I mean, I guess the if you're a real uh, a partisan, you could, you know, you can make the argument, oh, well, other administrations have done this too, and. Uh, I mean, my first thought when I heard this was was going back to uh, John Sununu, um, who did something similar, who liked the kind of traipse around on uh, uh, Air Force One. Um, but but look, I mean, uh, what what else can you do to the guy? And and I, I think that's I think it was the the right action. No, you know, I actually agree, and I I know a lot of people will say, certainly people on the left will say, this is just another example of the dysfunctional Trump administration thing. But I feel like this is different. And I, I agree that uh, the president did the right thing in, in getting rid of getting rid of Tom Price. And so uh, I, I don't I don't lump this in with a lot of these other things where, you know, Donald Trump was acting hastily, uh, uh, non-judiciously and that sort of thing. So so to me, this is this was a smart move. Tom Price made a made a huge mistake and he's he's paid for it. And so yeah. If, if the Trump administration is to be faulted for anything on this, it would be not paying closer attention uh, and not having a sense that that uh, knowing that that price was doing this. Um, now, I, I think you, you can I think you could also make a pretty decent argument. Look, the White House shouldn't be micromanaging uh, the airline reservations of um, uh, of uh, uh, of its um, cabinet members. Uh, but but. Regardless, I think since he found out about it, and, and you'll notice also it was originally there was like one flight or two flights and Price said he'd reimburse and then it came out. It was really much more than that. Um, so I think this was the right thing and it's it's the right sort of swamp draining, draining sort of sort of move also. Um, but, I, you know, I think something that, that though that this is just the, the problem is it's it's so endemic in, in Washington is this sort of sense of entitlement that once someone gets into office and into power and, and Tom Price, who was, had been sort of a budget hawk, uh, back in his congressional days, um, all of a sudden it, it, you know, is, is very much into the trappings, uh, of, of, uh, of executive power. And that's, uh, I think that's a, that's a problem that, that you always see it. I mean, it, it comes in different manifestations. Yeah. Um, 
No, I think I think that's entirely bipartisan. You know, you're you're absolutely right that once once one's exposed to those little little perks and benefits, or sometimes not so little perks and benefits, it's so easy to make the rational rationalizations and justifications. And we've seen that from Republicans, we've seen that from Democrats, and and of course, you know, as as you, I'm sure point out is is that's what some people say is that's why we need less government because no man the, the problem isn't democrats or republicans the problem is government governmental power corrupts and it's one thing when it's done on some corporation's dime it's another thing when it's done on the public the public dime basically absolutely absolutely yeah okay. and and uh, the the idea that um he could be such a lax watchdog uh, of his own of his own spending. I think is a problem. Now, you know, the other the other piece you mentioned is uh, is this also due to the failure of repeal and replace? And my sense is probably a little bit uh, more more along the lines of look if if Tom Price had been a superstar and had <laughs> passed you know repeal and replace, uh, you know I, I think the the sense might have been all right we'll cut him some slack and and Tom uh, just don't do it again, uh, sort of thing as opposed to to this where he was you know not a star player and I I don't know that you can uh, blame the failure of repeal and replace on him, uh, but you know sometimes life isn't fair uh, and and you know he was sort of the 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 guy at the head, uh, so so he's got to bear some responsibility for it. Yeah, I think Tom Price will be just fine. Um, now, before we get to our next story, we want to thank our first sponsor for today, and that is Da Vinci. You know, in this age of Skype and Slack and FaceTime and all that, you know, face to face meetings still matter. I mean. I think until we have, you know, Star Trek-like hollow projection meeting technology, uh, the face-to-face meeting, it's still the best way to get to know people, iron out issues, sign deals, all that sort of stuff. But do you really want to meet an important client or a potential investor in a coffee shop? I mean, it doesn't exactly scream professionalism. The good news, now you can skip the noisy coffee shops and expensive hotel conference rooms you might have been considering as a more professional alternative and simply book a DaVinci meeting room. DaVinci provides you instant access to over 5,000 incredibly affordable meeting rooms in well-known locations in every city and they make it totally easy. You just search, book, and meet and your DaVinci meeting room comes fully staffed and equipped with all the latest tech plus high-speed internet. Whether you need a day office, a conference room, a boardroom, or a training space, DaVinci has what you need to make your next business meeting a success. And best of all, DaVinci meeting rooms start at just $10 an hour. So whether you're an entrepreneur, startup, Fortune 500 company, hey, they all can enhance their image with professional meeting spaces from DaVinci. Basically, it's an, like an Airbnb for meeting rooms. Great idea. And if you book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG, the first hour is on them. That's davincimeeting.com slash TPG, and your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply. For details, say, see davincimeeting.com slash TPG. Where are you holding your next meeting? All right, moving on, Jay. You know, um, next we're going to talk about uh, Puerto Rico, which was, of course, devastated by Hurricane Maria. And there's this massive relief effort underway now. But there are a lot of factors that are making it difficult. Like, uh, you know, it's been difficult getting supplies to ports, backups at ports that are caused by uh, a limited availability of fuel, uh, limited availability of trucks and drivers, major damage to infrastructure. I mean, so we're seeing problems that we haven't seen in Houston and Florida in the wake of hurricanes Harvey and Irma. And 
And another problem unique to Puerto Rico is the existence of the Jones Act, that 1920 law requiring that good shit between U.S. ports be carried on ships that are built, owned, and operated by Americans. Now, President Trump— Which to me, as a free trader, uh, you can imagine how I feel about that. Oh, yeah. yeah, We're going to talk about that. Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, Now, on Thursday, President Trump issued a 10-day waiver of the Jones Act for Puerto Rico, which then that waiver can be extended if necessary. Uh, uh, The president has said— all along that these relief, relief efforts have been incredible, whereas some critics, including uh, uh, the mayor of San Juan, uh, claim that the government response has been too slow and too small. So what do you think, Jay? You know, I, I think this is uh, one of these situations where uh, that's, you know, this is why you call it a, a disaster. I mean, this is a, a terrible things that have happened. And as you mentioned, Puerto Rico is is different in terms of uh, our ability to respond, uh, partially because it's an island. Uh, it's it's more difficult to get, get help in there. Um, you know, from what I understand, there's 10,000 FEMA personnel in there um, right now. But the, the problem is more inside Puerto Rico and, and just the infrastructure uh, doesn't exist uh, now. I mean, you know, existed maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, in order to, to get these supplies out there. Um, you know, likewise, things like um, in situations like, like Houston and in Florida, you had an electrical grid system that was, was damaged and could be repaired. Uh, my understanding in, in a lot of Puerto Rico, that, that system has just been destroyed. It's got to be rebuilt. Um, same goes for, for roads and, and the, the biggest issue to, to my understanding is, is, you know, truck drivers, uh, you just don't have the personnel there and getting personnel in there to drive trucks, uh, to deliver the cargo that's actually already been delivered to the Island is, is has been one of the, the biggest holdups. Um, you know, the governor of, uh, of Puerto Rico has been more generous towards the, the administration and said they believes that they're doing everything they can. And uh, look, I understand the mayor of San Juan obviously uh, has to speak up for his people uh, and, uh, and and say he needs help and all that and probably doesn't mind taking a shot at, uh, at Trump, too, along the way. But uh, to me, this this sort of, you know, speaks to kind of the limits of, of what government can do, actually to the limits of what of what mankind can do. Um, you know, when faced with, with this kind of disaster, it's, it's just a, a hard slog to, to get through. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And, you know, one other thing that we haven't pointed out, I think that that's also important is, of course, in the wake of uh, Harvey and Irma, I mean, FEMA and emergency responders are already stretched pretty thin. You know, we're not used to seeing all of this happen all at once. And so, I, I mean, my sense of things is that the Trump administration is doing, uh, you know, a, a, a a decent job. I don't know if I'd call it incredible, but, or, or, you know, but it's certainly, they're doing a, I think a solid job and it's in a difficult situation. The only thing I would fault the administration for is uh, I don't think that president Trump needed to get involved in a personal Twitter war with the mayor of San Juan. But aside from that, I think this has been uh, about as, you know, good a response. Uh, maybe one other thing you could say is Trump should have been a little quicker to, uh, to to grant that Jones Act waiver. But honestly, even there, there's some dispute as to whether or not that really was an issue because according to a number of people, the problem wasn't so much that there wasn't enough uh, equipment and material at ports. The problem was getting it you know, from the ports to actually the, the people who needed it. So there were some right. who said and that. And there was also a lag time between 
uh, whether the, the Jones Act waiver is in place or not, uh, between when any ships uh, can get uh, can get to Puerto Rico from whatever port they're in. So I mean, I, I again, I think it's it's good that we uh, waive the Jones Act. Um, it'd be better if we abolished it. Um, but, I was going to uh, ask you about that. So you're you're in fa- you would be in favor of abolishing that. Yeah, and also the Jones Act does like about a hundred other things uh, too, um, besides that. But um, uh, no, I, I think there's this just points out the limits of, of what can be done, and and every, you know, every disaster is a little different. Again, Houston was different than Florida, and Puerto Rico is is different still. Uh, both were different than what happened to Katrina, and and it's it's always a learning curve, and and it's it, it's adapting to situations as they happen. So. Um, you know what? What they they could have done better. And this this is what frustrates me a little bit, uh, and just in communication, uh, the 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 optics of it. And I know it's probably you know sounds kind of sleazy to talk about that, and you know when people are suffering. But but what what's something that the, the uh, acting Homeland Security Secretary said? Well, this is a good news story about the appointment of the three star general and and moving land. You know, just. I mean, if if I could conduct a class for, for Trump personnel as far as the what not to say, it's sort of you want to avoid making those kind of this is a good news story just because it it's it's the big fat pitch right over the plate that if that someone wants to to hit it they they can they can knock it out of the park and that's what the the mayor of San Juan did. Uh, it's I mean it's it's very close to the you know heck of a job brownie uh, type uh, type statements that that uh, George George Bush uh, made. Um, you know, and and that to me is is a continual frustration just from the the, the pure politics of this because because it, look, it's impossible to take politics out of it altogether. Um, but uh, they could they could have played that better. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right right about that. And you know, uh, I think some people are trying to make a Katrina, com, you know, George W. Bush uh, comparison, and and I just don't think it's there. I think one thing certainly that the 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 U.S. government learned a lot from Katrina and a lot of things changed. And, and so in a sense, I, I agree that this is a, uh, in a way, I won't call it a good news story, but it's an example of government mounting, a, a, a you know, a, an effective response, certainly an inadequate response, but that's not because of the nature of, you know, government inefficiency. It's more the nature of the magnitude of the disaster that they're facing, basically. So, uh, so I would give, I mean, I would give the, the Trump administration on this, I would say a, a solid, I don't know, B minus B, something like that. So. No, I, I think that's, yeah, I'm in the same, same, uh, camp there. All right. Well, before we get to our next story, we want to thank our second response, our second sponsor for today, and that is ZipRecruiter. Jay, do you know how long Donald Trump has been president at this point? Well, it, it feels like years, but actually it's only been probably about nine months or so. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you, it's been 252 days, 22 hours, one minute and 35 seconds, according to how long has Donald Trump been president.com. I kid you not. That is a real website, uh, an uh, ongoing thing. But, but you know, after all that time, uh, over eight months, if you do the math, he still hasn't even named the nominee for 297 out of 601 key positions requiring Senate confirmation. So that's a that, when he's going to need a new health and human services director. There you and go. He still needs a uh, <laughs> homeland security advisor. Yeah, that's right. Because we only have an acting person for that. But that's a no nomination rate of nearly 50 percent. Now, 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 liberals and maybe even some conservatives might point to that as a sign that Donald Trump's presidency is floundering. Um, 
But maybe, just maybe, it's yet another demonstration of the old adage that good help is hard to find. And that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click, then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different because unlike those other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. And there's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. And hey, if any Trump administration officials are listening, that goes for you too. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. One more time because I want this great free deal to get stuck in your head like a hook to one of those songs you can't get out until you play it. The post jobs are free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. All right, moving on, Jay. Um, you know, let's, let's talk about the vote that wasn't. Uh, this week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell realizing that he didn't have the votes to pass Graham Cassidy, that's the latest Republican attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare, prevented the measure from coming to a vote. Now, because Graham Cassidy was being considered under filibuster-proof reconciliation rules that run out on September 30th, uh, this is basically the end of the line for a Republican-only health care law. But I should point out that Lamar Alexander, the chair of the Senate's Health Committee, and his Democratic counterpart, the ranking member uh, Patty Murray, they're working on a bipartisan me measure to stabilize uh, Obamacare, and we'll see where that goes. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on the failure of Graham Cassidy, as well as maybe the prospects for some sort of bipartisan legislation on, on health care in the near future? Well, it's uh, it's John McCain's world, and we just live in it. Um, I mean, I think that's the the takeaway for me. Um, you know, look, as, as a Republican, I'm, I'm obviously troubled that um, this is, again, the the, the uh, three defectors, um, defectors, I mean, as others have referred to them as a triumvirate of this is who really runs Washington. Um, when you've got that close of a, a uh, count in the Senate, um, it allows a few senators to exercise uh, uh, out, out, uh, uh, power outside what they would normally exercise. And, and I think that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, and we, you, you and I went back and forth a couple of times on, on Facebook, uh, over the week uh, about McCain, uh, specifically. Um, and I guess, I guess the reason McCain probably seems to be the linchpin of this whole thing is, well, you sort of always know what Rand Paul is going to do and you sort of always know what Susan Collins is going to do. Um, but McCain would be sort of the, uh, the justice Kennedy of the Senate, if you will. Um, and and to to me his his rationale of well I wanted to be a bipartisan process I want a regular order and all that uh, rings hollow uh, just in the fact listen this this man has been in the Senate um, uh, for for as long as I've had any any understanding that the Senate existed and um, he he knows that there wasn't going to be a bipartisan agreement. Um, and if that were the case, he, he could have made that clear from from day one and, and said he wouldn't support anything that wasn't bipartisan. Um, but he didn't. And, and we went through this exercise twice now. Um, 
So I, to, to me, that's, uh, that's troubling that, uh, uh, he seems to be putting it, whether it's, whether it's, uh, anti-Trump, whether it's ego, whether it's just John McCain being John McCain, uh, putting that ahead of, of, uh, potential, you know, policy changes. Well, you know, I, I won't, I won't try to delve into the, the motivations and psyche of John McCain. He's a complex guy. And, and certainly I, I don't entirely uh, disagree with you as to what some of his motives might be. But to me, this points out a larger failure. You know, Bob, when Mitch McConnell became majority leader, one of the things he did, and I've talked about this before, is he he made a speech. His first speech as majority leader was about the importance of the regular order. And when Obamacare was pushed through, he talked about the importance of getting some sort of bipartisan buy-in. And he swore that that's how he was going to run things as majority leader of the Senate. And pretty clearly, he's abandoned that uh, pretty much entirely now. Um, and, and to me, that, that represents, you know, a, a pretty significant failure, an institutional failure, failure really. I, and I think the reason why is the, the sort of the zero-sum nature of major legislation. How it's seen now in Washington is, you know, a win for, a win for me is a loss for you. And there aren't any, it seems like, any more legislative win-win scenarios. And, and some people will say that's just an inevitable consequence of a, of a highly polarized two-party system. And I think there really is something to that. I wish there were, you know, a simple solution to that. But I'll also point out that, you know, the last time we saw major legislation that there was at least an attempt to start off using the regular order and getting bipartisan buy-in, that was Obamacare. People don't remember that, but Obamacare started it using essentially regular processes trying to get Republicans to buy in. Now, Republicans pretty clearly made it clear that they weren't interested in doing that. And so it ended up being what it was. But this time that the Republicans, you could say maybe strategically, it made sense that we're never going to bother with a pretense of, of, you know, of bipartisanship. We're just going to start using reconciliation rules and so forth. And, you know, and, and, and again, I, I would say that Republicans are more to blame now. Yeah, other other people might disagree, well, but I mean, you mentioned the the structural. I mean, to me, a lot of it is look. The numbers are what they are, and and if you're going to be a realist, uh, uh, you can talk all you want about boy, it would be great if uh, if we could do this in a bipartisan manner. Um, but you know, you have to recognize the reality that some people just are not going to uh, are not cannot. Um, yeah, but, but uh, cross cross party lines on something like this. Well, it's more than just the numbers being what they are. I mean, it's it's more the case where the Senate is so polarized. There used to be back in the day, uh, back say for instance in '86 when the major tax reform, the last major tax reform was passed. Something we'll talk about in a minute. You know, there used to be a, a fair number of conservative Democrats and more liberal Republicans. And that's just, I mean, we have a couple, you know, there's, there's, uh, 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 there's uh, help me out here, Maine. We have, uh, I'm blinking on her name. I got Susan Collins. Susan Collins. There you go. Won't be a snow. And, uh, you know, and that's pretty much it essentially. And so occasionally you'll get a wild card, like a Ted, like a, well, sorry, I, no, I would like say also you've got some, say like a Jeff Flake in Arizona, uh, uh, Ben, Ben Sass, uh, in, in, uh, Nebraska, uh, folks who are, are conservative, um, uh, but, but are also, uh, willing to, to work and are not, are not Trumpians and are not Rand Paul 
uh, of the, you know, nothing is, you know, nothing good enough. Um, so yeah, you're definitely, I think you, there's something to be said for that too, but, but I think that the biggest thing to me, the difference between the Senate now and the well, Senate yeah, Rob of say, Portman from Ohio too, I could, sort of, there, I guess, but, but the middle is essentially <laughs> missing. Uh, you know, the, there's, there used to be plenty of overlap between the Democrats and the Republicans, or at least a fair amount. You could, there were, there was a group of, you know, 10, 15 who were kind of in that kind of mushy middle. And now it's maybe three or four or something like that now. And that, that to me, I, I don't have any good answers for that, but until that is, that changes, we're going to continue to see the sort of things that we see. And, you know, and Mitch McConnell was absolutely right in saying that when you don't have bipartisan buy-in, you essentially have bad policy. And, and I agree, but it's not because these are necessarily bad people. It's, it's, a, it's a structural problem. And until we start electing different sorts of people, I don't think that's going to change. Well, I'm going to throw out a, a little bit different theory. Um, and again, this has not been tested by any sorts of, of actual studies or, or, or facts or evidence. Um, but uh, to me, this is the kind of issue where, you know, when the, the times when you get bipartisan solutions uh, are when you can have other factors that override partisanship, uh, a strong regional interest, for example. Um, and and you don't really have that in, in this healthcare scenario. It's, it's sort of purely ideological. And I think it's it, because also that's it's so complex there is little understanding of, of what actually, you know, how this is actually going to play out. Even if you understood every piece of the bill, uh, you still wouldn't necessarily have an idea of how is this going to play out in the real world? Is this good for my state as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, good for me, you know, philosophically. Um, and I think that's different. There's, you don't have that, for example, on, on, uh, uh, greenhouse gas stuff, um, on, on, um, uh, environmental stuff, you, you, you get different state interests playing into that, that sometimes can overcome parties, party interest. For example, Joe mentioned and from West Virginia or a, a state with a high, uh, industrial work base, uh, might, might do something different. Um, but, but this, it, it's sort of a purely ideological test and it's just sort of which side of the aisle are you? And there's, there's not much to, to pull someone one way or the other. Um, and again, that's just my like hundred thousand foot, foot read on this, but. Yeah, I think you're right. Sometimes that, sometimes it's a factor, but, but more and more often or less and less often, we see that sort of thing just because the, the, the force, the, the forces of, of polarization just pull everyone apart so much more than those sort of things can, can bring people together. But, well, and then it's also, I'll, I'll, I'll keep babbling about this just one more one more minute the, um, again to me it does come down to the numbers and and there really are certain things i think that happen just as a matter of, of kind of like game theory uh in terms of numbers and when you've got a close number uh in a, in a legislative organization the the incentive is to hang together um when when it's when it's different when like hey look the other side's going to win anyway uh, the, the game theory seems to be more of, of attacking your own side. Uh, this is kind of the dynamic more in the house is in the Senate. Um, and you get other folks who realize this is going to pass anyway. What can I get out of it? Uh, who will, who will go along? Um, but I think when it's, when it's this close there, there's the incentive to, to hold the line. 
on well, both you know, sides. You know, I think you used to be right on that, but I don't think you're right anymore because I look at the House where I look at the House where the the Democrats are, you know, in a pretty uh, or the Republicans have a pretty strong majority there. I don't see the Democrats kind of going along with anything to see what they can get. I see them standing pretty firm as a group against that. So I think you used to be right. That's certainly how the Republicans operated when the Democrats had a huge majorities in the House back in the in the 80s and the 90s. But I think that era is largely is largely gone. So you're a little more optimistic on this than I am, I think. So, all right, you know, before we get to our next story, I want to thank our third sponsor today, SeatGeek. You know, by now, you know how I feel about buying tickets to live events. I put it right up there with scheduling my semi-annual HVAC maintenance. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm getting ripped off because not with my HVAC guy, low HVAC guy, but it's the pain. Anyway, that feeling that, you know, there, there gotta be cheaper tickets out there, but I just don't know where they're at. And, but I also don't want to spend a lot of time checking out multiple ticket sites. That's why I love SeatGeek. They solve both of these problems for me. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. It only takes two taps on the SeatGeek app to buy tickets. And it's also quick and easy if you go through their website, SeatGeek.com. And the reason why SeatGeek can give you such great deals is that they compare multiple ticket sites to find you the best deals. And they even grade every available ticket based on value so you can instantly see what the best deals are for your budget, whatever that is. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code politicsguy today. Or you can enter promo code politicsguy and when you go buy through seatgeek.com. That's promo code politicsguy for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, uh, Jay, you know, moving on, there was a there was more today, uh, more this week on Alabama Senate primary, Republican electoral politics, right? I mean, this week, former Judge Roy Moore soundly defeated incumbent Senator Luther Strange in the Republican Senate primary. And Moore's win comes despite President Trump's support of Strange, which included a trip to Alabama where the president voiced his support for Strange and did a bunch of other things as well as President Trump has wanted to do. Um, Now, Moore will face the Democratic nominee, Doug Jones, who's a former United States attorney, in the general election on December 12th. So, Jay, this is this is your party. Um, what are your thoughts on the primary, you know, both in terms of what it means about the president's influence and what it may say about the direction of of your party? Um, you know, the. Uh, we Trey and I talked about <clears throat> this last week, and I think I sort of missed the call <clears throat> because my sense was that. Luther Strange was uh, while Roy uh, Moore was leading, Luther Strange was ascendant. Uh, and uh, by the end of the day, would uh, um, would would uh, would pull it out. Um, but I was wrong, and, and I think uh, what I underestimated are sort of the factors that I, I would usually look to. Um, and that is one: I mean, all politics is is local to some extent, and um, Strange had the the this misfortune of having been uh, named to the Senate by a governor who was uh, embroiled in scandal and later forced to, to step down. Um, so there was the sense of, uh, again, this guy's part of the swamp, the establishment, the uh, he's probably a crook too. Uh, he had that strike against him. Um, uh, you know, he was picked by a machine, that sort of thing. Um, 
the other advantage that uh, Roy Moore had was he'd run statewide before. And, and I, I think that's, that's one of these, these things that look as a, as a practitioner, as someone who's, who's been involved in these things, that's something that you can't, um, understate and it never shows up on the news. Um, but, but just the idea of having an organization, uh, already on the ground in place, um, is a tremendous advantage having the name recognition and, and Roy Moore certainly didn't lack for rate name recognition, um, uh, because he had been famous or perhaps infamous for, for some time. Uh, and then my, the last factor I would look at is, is how does that impact turnout? And uh, turnout was, was really pretty low, as you would expect in a um, off-year uh, runoff um, uh, uh, election. So, you know, in, in that sort of thing, it's, it's Moore's got the better organization, the better people, the, the people who are more excited about it. It's hard to say anyone was really excited about uh, Luther Strange, uh, and and that's that's what uh, he rode to victory. Well, you, you know, to me, this this sort of well, Democrats, a lot of Democrats were actually rooting for Roy Moore because there's no question well, of course. <laughs> he, he's going to be a horrible candidate, uh, or at least a much. Uh, I think that Roy Moore is going to end up winning the the election on December 12th, but Roy Moore gives Doug Jones a lot better chance than Luther Strange would have, because Roy Moore is, in my view, Roy Moore is slightly unhinged. Um, and now, you know, other people may may, may disagree. He certainly, uh, I guess you could say he's an ardent social conservative. I think that would be a fair a fair statement. He's made a number of incredibly controversial statements. Um, and, you know, I, I see this as, part of a larger trend you can call it the, the, the Steve Bannonization of the party. I don't know uh, if you want to say that, but you know, it kind of in related news, uh, Bob Corker from Tennessee announced he's not going to seek recall reelection. And in part it's because he expected a primary challenge from his right. You know, and then again, you know, I just, we just talked about polarization in the Senate and if anything, you know, I, I would love to see this getting better, but if anything, it seems to be getting worse and and that to me does not does not bode well no matter who ends up controlling the senate in in 2018 it's almost certainly going to be the republicans or in 2020 and beyond you know that's just not not a good thing yeah i i think the the alabama race is probably tough to lose even for more uh but but the the difficulty he presents for republicans in general uh is that it will allow democrats to paint other senate uh, candidates with the Roy Moore brush, um, you know, the side by side, uh, 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 ads and, and so forth. And, and more just calling, calling out of, 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 listen, if you vote for, uh, whomever Senator X, who may be a, a, a you know, well-meaning moderate, he's really the party of Roy Moore. So that, that's another reason why Democrats, uh, were, were probably fairly happy at this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it gives you that gives reporters uh, uh, an opportunity to say, so Roy Moore said X outrageous thing about homosexuals or religion. Do you agree or do you think he should be? I mean, we've, we've seen this played out with with President Trump himself. So uh, it's a lot less effective when it's a, a Senate candidate or senator. But still, this is the last thing that I, uh, that uh, moderate Republicans, uh, reasonably moderate Republicans, people like Roy, people like Bob Corker wanted to see, I think. You know. All right. Um, 
you know, I think we have time, Jay, for uh, one more story. And this was this was something that came up just shortly after uh, you and Trey did your show last week. Uh, and it's an issue we've talked about a lot on this show, and that's travel bans. You know, very early this week, President Trump issued a new permanent travel ban for citizens of Iran, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Chad, and North Korea, as well as for certain Iraqi and Venezuelan citizens. Now, this replaces the temporary ban that was scheduled for a Supreme Court hearing just a few weeks from now, in fact. Now, now according to the administration, the new ban comes after a rigorous analysis of security measures in, in, in all foreign countries, really, with the countries on the banned list not meeting minimum security screening standards. And the administration has said that if these countries come into compliance, their ban will be reconsidered and potentially removed. And to me, while I have issues with the idea of this kind of broad travel ban, I think there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it, in fact, doesn't make us any safer. In fact, there was a great analysis from the, the Cato Institute, but among other places. But to me, and the Cato Institute, we should we should mention, are not are not a bunch of. Uh, uh, far out liberals. No, strong, strong, about <laughs> as strong libertarian group as you're going to find. And, and to me, uh, while I disagree with this as a policy, I think that it's really hard to argue convincingly that this is unconstitutional. So I think this is a questionable policy in terms of the good it's going to do, the cost benefit. But I think this is absolutely something that passes constitutional muster. So what, what do you think, Jay? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think the the current ban probably would have uh, would have will pass uh, the uh, from the Supreme Court, assuming the Supreme Court even uh, continues and, and hears arguments on the case. Um, we had talked about this a while ago. Is is has you know at this point the the whole ban been rendered moot? My sense is uh, it, it probably has, uh, and the Supreme Court asked for a briefing on that question, and and that I think to me that's that's good for a lot of reasons. Um, and this isn't so much the policy reason, but but rather just the idea that uh, I, I prefer not to have the courts uh, mucking about in um, uh, national security issues and telling the president what he can or can't do on a national security uh, uh, issue like this. And again, the president, I, I would agree with you that the travel ban is probably uh, superfluous at, at best and, and doesn't do a whole lot. But it's uh, it may be a dumb idea, but it's within his authority as uh, uh, Scalia once uh, once said that he he wished he had a a const uh, he wished wished he had a stamp that said uh, dumb but constitutional. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I would I would stamp this that way. Uh, now you you and I disagree a little bit uh, as to the extent of or to whether or not Trump's original travel ban was unconstitutional. You are willing to give a little more deference to to the president on that, but we, we it seems like we definitely agree that this one, uh, potentially not the best policy idea, but hard to see this, uh, I think, you know, reasonably being unconstitutional. So this should, this should stand up and this is, this is how it's going to be, I think. Yep. All I right. I think so. I think so. All right. Well, it's time for what we're reading, where we step back from the often crazy pace of the news cycle. There sure was a lot going on this week and talk about, you know, more in depth. Thoughtful we we didn't even get to tax reform, which which I promise we will, because that's that's a big issue for me. So, oh, my gosh, we didn't get the tax reform. Hang, hang in there. Hang in there, people. How did that even how did that even happen, Jay? 
well, we talked about doing it, but there, but there was just a lot of other stuff going on. Well, and, you know, and there will be more stuff. We, we've got we've got a little reform, bit of time. How about if we uh, how about if we swap out tax reform for for what we're reading? I think that's I think yeah, what we're okay. reading can hold. Yeah, I I completely, uh, folks. This is my fault. I I got my I got my story list messed up, and we almost got through the entire show without the big policy story of the week. Of the Mia biggest Culpa. policy story of a generation. Yeah, perhaps. absolutely. Okay, here we go. Um, so. So let's let's talk about exactly what happened with uh, the tax reform, uh, the tax reform announcement. Essentially, um, now the, there was a nine page plan that was released this week, a joint effort of the Trump administration, the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee. Now, I broke it down. I took a good close look at it. And here are the key features of the framework as I understand them. OK, Jay, you ready? OK, I'm ready. OK. Cutting the corporate tax rate rate from 39.1% to 20%, creating a new tax rate of 25% for pass-through businesses. And pass-through businesses, by the way, comprise 95% of all businesses in the U.S. And they're, they're currently taxed at the generally much higher rate of their owners. Eliminating taxes on foreign earnings of U.S. companies, moving from seven to three individual tax brackets. Lowering the top individual bracket from 39.6% to 35%. Eliminating almost all individual deductions, including the state and local tax deductions, but keeping the mortgage interest and charitable giving deductions. Eliminating the alternative minimum tax, which targets the wealthiest Americans, as well as inheritance and gift taxes. And finally, doubling the individual standard deduction to $12,000 for individuals and $24,000 for married couples filing jointly. So that's, I think, my rundown of what I pulled out as the key, that's, key yeah, points. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I'd like to think. Yeah. So now I should say that because we're dealing with a very vague framework at this point, it's really hard to say how big of a cut this would represent, though the nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget they estimate that over a decade, this plan would cut taxes by $5.8 trillion and would increase the debt by $2.2 trillion. And yeah, that's a lot. Now, finally, we, I, I should point out that um, the, the Senate Republicans plan to use budget reconciliation to, to pass this measure if they can, meaning that they'll only need 50 votes, but also meaning that under the Byrd rule, the measure can't increase the deficit after 10 years. And that's pretty important. So, so Jay, uh, I know you've been uh, thinking a lot about the, this, uh, this proposal or this framework, I'm sorry, this week. What's your, what are your thoughts on it? I, I, I like it. I am pleased with where this is going and with the understanding this is a framework, this is not going to be where things end up. Um, there's there's two big big pieces to it, and the first is I think the corporate tax reform, which is actually the the, the more important piece. Um, as you noted in your your conversation with, um, uh, 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 oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the economist now uh, who you spoke to uh, last week. Um, uh, you know he he pointed out that th this is something that most economists can agree on. Uh, that our corporate tax rate is too high and makes us less competitive uh, globally. Um, you know, I, the one of the some of the numbers I saw uh, were that of the 35 um, developed, you know, most developed countries, we are number 35 in terms of our corporate tax rate. Uh, now, people on the left often argue, well, that's you know, corporate tax rate really was was uh, was actually higher back in back in the Reagan era. Um, 
and and while that may be true, the it's 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 you play against uh, it's it's relative. The problem is uh, the rest of the world has lowered their corporate tax rates, uh, and if we want to compete by keeping corporations here, uh, that's something we need to do. And and the other the other piece of this is uh, that you didn't mention is is it does provide a one time tax on stockpiled foreign profits. Uh, which the and allows for uh, tax-free repatriation of future foreign profits, which is the encouragement for for companies to keep money here, bring back money here. Uh, you know the inversions that that have been talked about, where a company sets up in Ireland, sets up its headquarters in Ireland, and essentially avoids uh, a lot of uh, U.S. tax because all the money is going in, into Ireland. Uh, this allows the, us to get that that money back, and I think that's. That's important, and, and I think most uh, economists would, would would agree on that. That, that this is a good goal. Then the problem is it it sets up the uh, easy sort of populist argument oh, if it's a tax cut for big corporations. Well, and um, of course, of course, it is a tax cut for big corporations, and that's now you know in terms of talking about you know first principles. <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly, and that's that's the Republican response, and and the the logic or the argument is that. Uh, the tax cut will will spur will spur investment and growth and that sort of thing, right, Jay? Now, and the 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 thing is though is the the the, the or sorry the the liberal response to that argument is well, okay, maybe, and there's certainly something to be said for that. The Republicans, a lot of Republicans, will say, well, we can we can cut taxes and the growth will pay for it. But you know, you mentioned something Glenn Hubbard said about the ag- agreement that the corporate tax rate is too high. He also said the tax cuts don't pay for themselves. Now, this is a guy who engineered to this point the biggest tax cut, you know, the Bush tax cuts, 1.5 trillion. He flat out said to me, tax cuts don't pay for themselves. He said they can certainly, you can get some growth that can minimize their overall, you know, uh, effect, make them, you know, there is some stimulus, but that's one issue in which I think too many non-economist Republicans aren't being honest about. This is not going to pay for itself. That's just simply not going to happen. But another point I want to make is that, you know, this ar- the problem I have with this argument that, well, these we're going to see a lot of growth from this is right now, corporate earnings are at record levels, number one. And secondly, corporations are holding nearly $2 trillion in cash right now. And that you look at those numbers for corporate earnings, that, that's been going up like a, like a reverse ski slope sort of thing for like about a, almost a decade now. The problem is not that corporations don't have the money to invest. They're not investing for other reasons. So I find a flaw in this argument that, well, if we can just get more money to these corporations, they're going to invest because they have a ton of money sitting around already that they're not using for this purpose. So I'm a little skeptical of this, of this argument, given what we know about, about the corporate earnings and, and corporate profits that aren't being used right now. Well, we'll, we'll wait and see. My sense is you're going to see an uptick in corporate investment. Um, I think you've, you've probably, there's probably been some, I don't have any numbers in front of me right now, but uh, I think already this year, uh, I would sense that the, they're, I mean, just if you look at the, the employment rate, um, uh, there is a sense that more companies are are hiring now. Um, so no, look, look, I get it, but um, regardless, uh, to me, it's 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 not even so much that it's 
it's where is this uh, money flowing to? Uh, is, it, is it flowing into the U.S. or is it flowing out uh, to other places with, with lower, uh, lower taxes? And because that's going to happen regardless of, of whether they just hold this cash or invest it. Um, uh, I think still it's, it's better to have it here. Um, the other piece of this that, that uh, I think is fascinating and we could really talk a whole lot more about, and I know we're, we're really running along on this show, but the, uh, on the individual front, um, two big things have happened. Uh, one, if you're talking about cutting out the, the various stratifications and moving to a simplified tax code, I think that is, is, is good and healthy and something that uh, conservative economists have been arguing for, for years uh, and that what you essentially do is lower the marginal tax rate, um, meaning there are fewer of these these speed bumps, so to speak, uh, as as your income increases. Um, the other piece is the uh, getting rid of the state and local tax deduction. Um, and and I speak as someone who who takes full advantage of the state and local tax deduction. Um, but it's it's a fascinating uh, sort of sort of thought. I don't think that that's going to stay in there. Um, uh, but uh, it it does show the sense of look the the people who benefit most from that are uh, the the more wealthy uh, homeowners and people who live in in uh, uh, higher priced houses in high tax districts. Um, so uh, you know it, it's 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 a funny sort of uh, I mean I think if you're going to argue that, that it's hard to argue that is is soaking the poor and in fact that. In a lot of cases, it, it's sort of a, a wealth transfer to to uh, blue states. So yeah, I was going to say it's it's soaking Democrat states as as a general rule, right? Well, I mean, but but you know, by, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to stay in uh, either. You know, one question I wanted to ask you, and we're we're going to talk a lot more about this as this goes from a framework to a to a real plan. Uh, but but one thing I wanted to ask you is, whatever happened to deficit hawks? I remember a time when there were all kinds of Republicans who, if there was a plan. It looked like it was going to increase a deficit, not by, by even, even a few, a paltry few hundred million dollars, not to mention billion, not to mention trillions of dollars, would totally freak out sort of my prototypical Republican of the 90s, Bob Dole, you know, was, was one of these guys, right? But where are they now? They're, they're trying to make this weird argument of, well, dynamic storing, scoring and tax cuts will pay for themselves and so forth. They just don't have any, you know, real empirical base. I miss the old green eye shade Republicans. Well, <laughs> what happened to those folks, Jay? Well, I think there, there were still some out there. Uh, Again, I, I've always been a fan of the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which sort of proposed that sort of a one-for-one one, uh, deficit hawk reduction, um, even, even though uh, I, I agree. I mean, I think there ought to be some some dynamic pork written. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I Look, you're right. The empirical data says tax cuts uh, don't always pay for themselves. Uh, you would say never pay for themselves. I'd maybe disagree with you on that. Um, but... Look, there's there's two sides to this. Uh, one is controlling spending. Uh, the other is is fixing the tax code to to increase growth. Um, we need to increase growth no matter what, because the we're not doing a good job at the controlling spending piece of it. Uh, so so as you mentioned those numbers earlier, uh, this would be a, a five trillion ta- dollar tax cut. Uh, it would increase the deficit by two trillion. Um, Again, I I think that's that's one of those. You're you're still better off being able to deal with a deficit if you've got some positive growth moving forward, uh, and then you can talk about uh, cutting spending. Um, 
but, but, you know, ideally you can do both. Um, but just because you can't do both, I think you, you still need to, to boost the economy because, because spending isn't slowing down. Uh, even under a Republican legislature and a public well, and, president. And, and that's my point. They, is they've that, shown themselves in a, in a, unable to do that. So. Yeah, and that's my point. You know, it, it, it's uh, the, the Republicans, you know, all you should say about the Democrats, they're the party of tax and spend, but uh, uh, Republicans are the par- party of tax cut and spend. And I guarantee you one of those things is less sustainable over the long term than the other. And so I think this is a real failure of nerve on the part of uh, of the Republican Party, certainly. And uh, I think we're going to come to, you know, grief because of that sort of thing, because I guarantee you the things that tend to stay in are, are the spending related measures, not the and the tax cuts as well. And so Republicans have been kicking this can down the road for a long time. And two trillion dollars, that's not peanuts. That's an awful lot of money. And already, already our federal debt is 103 percent of GDP. And that's been rising crazy fast since 2008. If we don't take care of that, we can't grow our way out of this. We have to, we have to find a way to, you know, the, the, uh, some kind of a plan that involves both growth and spending related issues. And I don't see, I don't see that happening. And, you know, the Democrats have a plan. You may not agree with it, but raising taxes dramatically will certainly address this, at least in theory. The Republicans don't even have a, a, a sound theoretical uh, uh, response to this. And I think that's... Oh, I, I, no, I, no, no. No, no, no. I, d- I disagree that this isn't a sound, sound theoretical. But tax cuts uh, don't pay for themselves. I mean, Glenn Hubbard said it, you know, I mean, if right. Glenn, so that's what I'm saying. The- what, and, but again, I mean, I think you're, you're going with the assumption that the government always needs to keep increasing spending and keep spending on, on, on what it is, is spending on. I, I would say the more money you put into people's hands, uh, private individuals, private corporations, uh, Ideally, the less government help is going to be needed uh, down the road. So, you know, I, I think that's that's more the theory. I mean, if, if look, if if people have uh, more more money in their pockets, uh, uh, they're not going to need um, uh, more government uh, more government assistance. And maybe then we can move towards towards cutting some of those that spending. But but to me, look, you've you've got to make if you don't get growth going. And uh, you're not competitive on the world stage. Um, you know, it, it, you, you need to do that because, look, like I said, we're, we're failing uh, at, at cutting spending, but that's another story. Um, at least we can start by getting this part right. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that, you know, I point out we're in the middle of the, the, the longest economic expansion in, you know, in geez, in, in, in a long time, eight, nine years, something like that at this point. So and of course, if you listen to the president, he'd say that growth is absolutely fantastic. I'm a little more skeptical than you are about the ability of these changes in the tax code to uh, to spur the sort of growth that you and other Republicans uh, see. And I'm a little more worried, I think, than you are about adding trillions of dollars on onto the uh, onto the already massive federal debt which is well maybe- it's good that it's good that I've you've you've you you're becoming a budget hawk uh, I, I always have been. Your budget hawk route, route, I was gonna say so that, I, that the party didn't you know um, the, the I didn't leave the party on that issue the party left me on that okay. issue so anyway I think that that about does it for this this action-packed uh, full to the brim episode of uh, of the show for for this week at least um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. 
We really do appreciate it. Um, and we hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. First is DaVinci. Book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And the first hour is on them. ZipRecruiter, Politics Guys listeners can post on jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Politics Guy. And SeatGeek, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code Politics Guy today. You know, listener support's big help to us. We do appreciate it. If you're interested in helping us out, go to PoliticsGuys.com and click on the Patreon link. If you want to support the show without spending anything, it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends, followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes really helps. If you got a question, comment, correction, or just want to say hi, you can reach us at mailapoliticsguys.com or on our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.